All right, well, we're beginning a new series today on the Minor Prophets. We finished up Mark last week. Um, the Minor Prophets are the last 12 books in the Bible. In the, sorry, not the Bible. The Old Testament. And um, beginning from Hosea to Malachi. And they are called Minor uh, because they are shorter in length than the other prophets, the other longer major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then you have these 12, which are much, much shorter. Um, also in the Hebrew Bible, these 12 are contained in one book. Originally, they were written on one scroll, seen as, 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 as a unit. So that's why they're called minor. Uh, they're called prophets because each of the, the books that we'll look at uh, contains the words of God speaking through um, a prophet. And that book, each book is also named after that prophet. Now, I'm not sure what ideas or images come to your mind when you think of the word prophet, uh, but there are three main purposes that these prophets had. One, they were to call God's people to repentance, to return to God from their waywardness and, and rebellion. Uh, secondly, they were to warn of God's judgment if there was no repentance, if, if they continued in their, their rejection of God. And then third, to offer hope for the future based on the mercy and faithfulness of God. So warn or call, call to repentance, warn of judgment, and then hold out these promises of God's mercy and faithfulness. And so perhaps you have this idea of a prophet as somebody who merely just predicts the future, is just saying things about the future. Uh, that is one understanding of the prophet, and these prophets do that at times but that is not the main role of these prophets. In general, they are simply reminding the people of what God has already said. Like, God said, if you did this, if you strayed from me, then this would happen. These curses would come. It looks like you're doing this. Be warned. Or God said, if you would return to me after your, your straying, after your rebellion, that he would, he would return to you and he would draw you to himself and offer you his kindness and goodness. And so repent and turn. That's a in a nutshell, what these prophets are doing. They're reminding the people of what God had already said in the past. So we're going to go through these a little bit differently than normal. We're going to actually take one whole book a week. I'm going to cover the book in a week. We're not going to read the whole book, um, but we are still going to let God's word uh, lead us and speak to us and try to understand uh, what God is saying. We're just going to take larger chunks of scripture at a time. So we'll kind of jump through a book, consider some significant parts, and then see the big meaning, big idea of its message. Okay? So that's what we're going to go over the next 12 weeks. Today, before we get into one of the books, uh, we're actually going to just do an introduction, a, and kind of get our bearings as to where we're at here with the Minor Prophets. Um, kind of zoom out and locate ourselves uh, both historically, like where are we at in God's history, wh what has come before, what has come after, um, but then also locate ourselves uh, in, in line with salvation and redemption and, and God's workings and how God has worked before this time leading up to the prophets and how God has work will work afterwards and just try to get this kind of big picture view of what God is doing so we can understand what God is doing here. So we've got some history to cover today. Some of you 
probably excited about that. Some of you are like, history. Uh, but this is not just history. We're not just learning about events and dates and people and all of this. This is God's history. This is God's word. And the ultimate aim, our ultimate goal is that we might know God better. Um, might see who he is and be drawn into deeper fellowship with him. Okay? So we're going to zoom out and go back to the beginning in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. God comes to a man named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and he speaks to him. He enters into what is called a covenant, this relational agreement, commitment with him. Kind of like a man and woman, we speak of a covenant when a man and woman come together in marriage. God covenants himself to Abraham and to his family in a way that will affect the rest of human history. So let me read a couple verses from Genesis 12. These will be up on the screen. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This is God's covenant with Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice three things here real quick. First, God chooses to work among Abraham and his descendants in a unique, special way. Uh, these will be the Israelites, who are named after uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who becomes Israel, hence Israelites. Secondly, God says that he will bless all the families of the earth through this one family. So God's unique and special working among the Israelites isn't doesn't only concern the Israelites. God is working among them in a special way in order to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. We'll come back to that. And then third, notice that this is an unconditional promise. This is not based on what Abraham does or what his descendants do or what the rest of humanity does. This is God saying, I will do this. I am committing myself to, to bless you in order to bless all the peoples of the earth. Uh, blessing means to bestow benefit on, to give good gifts to, to, um, to, to work good for. Kind of what you would think blessing, blessing means. Uh, so God is committing himself to, to do this for all the families of the earth. Okay, those things are going to come back. Uh, we'll, we'll see those, those promises come back. Over time, Abraham's descendants become very numerous, uh, as God had promised, and that's good. But they also become slaves in Egypt. And so in keeping his commitment to them, God comes through a man uh, named Moses to rescue them out of their slavery. Uh, through great signs and wonders, God delivers them out of Egypt in order to eventually bring them to their own land, the promised land. As they are traveling out of Egypt, uh, we, we saw this as we went through Deuteronomy a couple years ago. As they're traveling out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai where God again meets with them in a very significant way, and again he makes a covenant with them, with, with the Israelites. As part of this covenant, he gives them some laws. Uh, he teaches them how to, how to be his people, what it looks like to love him and to love others. So consider these words. Read, a, read some verses from Deuteronomy 30. This is the end of Deuteronomy as they're the people are about to enter into the promised land. And these words will help us understand the role that the prophets have. 
Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 15. See, I have set before you today, Moses is speaking through um, to the Israelites, God speaking through Moses. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Okay, so unlike the covenant that God makes with Abraham, this covenant is conditional, right? There's two sides to this covenant. If Israel remains faithful, then God will bless them. They can love and obey and hold fast to God and God will bless them and, and work good and give them life, keep them in the land, or they can refuse to listen to God, turn away, and God will bring down curses on them. And this is just a reminder that what we do and what we believe and what we love matters. We are not simply passive players in a world where God is just going to do what he's going to do, so let's just sit back and let him, let him go. No, our obedience, our faithfulness, our faith matters. And there are real consequences to, to how, we, how we do in that. And we're going to see that play out as the Israelites go forward. After this point, after Mount Sinai, God then leads the Israelites into their own land under a man named Joshua. You can read about that in the biblical book of Joshua. After Joshua comes a period of about 300 years where the judges rule over Israel. You can read about that in the biblical book of Judges. During this time, during the time of the judges, Israel's tendency towards um, faithlessness and rebellion and apostasy uh, becomes, becomes evident. And by the time the period of the judges is through, they've basically uh, broken the covenant in every way imaginable. And the end of the, the last verse, the kind of summary of the book of Judges says, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they didn't consider what was right in God's eyes. Everyone was just doing his own thing. They had no fear of God. Um, and so things don't go well. Eventually, as things are not going well, they demand a king. God put a king over us. God warns them that this will not turn out well, but they, they insist, and God grants them a king. First, he gives them Saul to rule over them. That doesn't go particularly well. And so after Saul, David is given the, the kingdom. Um, in many ways, he is a great king. After David comes his son Solomon. Okay, so that's kind of everything up to this point, all the, the high points, if you will, um, in our story. And right about the time of Solomon is where... God sent, starts to send the prophets to speak to Israel. The, 
the, the, the corresponding history, so we're going to be going through the prophetic books, which are mostly the words of the prophets to God's people. There's not a lot of narrative. There's not a lot of accounting of what is actually going on. There's some. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, we actually have the history of what is going on during most of this time in the prophets. So in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, those six books is kind of the time period that we're looking at here as the time of these prophets. And it's a tumultuous time. It's, it's a very tumultuous time for God's people. Uh, largely characterized by idol- idolatry, them giving their hearts and their worship to other things. Um, spiritual apathy, just being cold, disregarding God. Um, wicked leadership. And just unjust living. Not treating each other, not treating... Um, treating others well, not abiding by God's commands. After King Solomon, Israel is split into two kingdoms, the Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, over this period, both kingdoms have 19 kings, and by and large, they are all wicked kings. Judah has some good ones. Israel has no good ones. Uh, it is a very depressing list of rulers. Eventually, both kingdoms get conquered and the people taken into, ex- into exile. So Israel is attacked and taken into exile um, by Assyria around 725 BC. About 130 years later, Judah is conquered and taken into exile in ba- Babylon, about 596 BC. And both of these exiles uh, occur during the time of the prophets, and they are significant events, as we'll see. We'll come back to this during during the prophets. They're a major theme, um, precisely because exile didn't just happen. This wasn't just a, a, a matter of chance that uh, one nation became stronger and came in and, and, and conquered the Israelites. No, this was God, God doing what he said he was going to do, um, God bringing um, judgment on the Israelites for their waywardness and rebellion. And so we're going to look at one passage here, um, kind of be our theme passage for today in 2 Kings 17. And, and what this is, is Israel's exile to, by, by the Syrians has just occurred. And this is given as the explanation for why that happened. Not just what happened. They went into exile. But this is given for the, 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 the spiritual, from God's perspective, explanation as to why Israel was um, attacked and conquered and the people brought into exile. So consider these words. This will help us to understand what is going on um, during the time of the prophets. Second Kings 17, starting at verse 7. I'm going to go through verse 20. And this occurred, the exile. Because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger 
and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They also went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. As if that is a note of hope, it goes on. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunders until he cast them out of his sight. So Israel's wickedness and rebellion is connected back to the law, to the covenant that God had made with them through Moses. They did not keep the covenant. They failed time and time again to, to obey God, to fear God, to, to love the Lord, to stay with him. And thus God brings down the curses that he had promised. And in a sense, this is something like a snapshot of the whole period of the minor prophets. It's about a 300-year period where, um, for the most part, it's pretty dark, pretty depressing. And through the words of the prophets, God warns the people of the consequences of continuing down this path, continuing to reject him, often with very uh, jarring language. So one of the things that the prophets, as you read through these books, one of the things that they, they do is kind of awaken you out of any sense of um, mundaneness or smallness or, ah, you know, there's not much really going on in this world. They, the language is jarring. Sin and judgment is shocking. But so is God's mercy, as we'll get to. But let me just read a few words um, of some of this jarring language of judgment. And this just comes from one chapter in Zephaniah 1. It says, The great day of the Lord is near. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A little bit later, he says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. So the prophets remind us that sin and evil have consequences. God doesn't just sit by idly as people reject him. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, well, people will be people. That's just, that's just how things go. No, God takes sin extremely seriously. And we're forced to grapple with that. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's shocking. And so our, the first part of our series, sermon series title, Great Judgment. But that's just the first part. 
The prophets do more than call for repentance and warn of judgment. Remember their third task. Their third task is to hold out this hope of God's mercy and faithfulness. The prophets, as you read through these books, they consistently hold out this hope, this promise of a merciful, faithful, kind, delighting to show love God. Yes, sin must be judged with, judged, and we are all sinners. Our situation does not look good. Their situation does not look good. But God has made a promise. And so in the midst of all of this, we have to look back to the promise that God made to Abraham. Looming over all of this, looming over all of the Old Testament, including this tumultuous time of rebellion and spiritual apathy, is this promise of God's blessing. No matter how bad things get, no matter how many times they break the covenant, no matter how many times God promises and then brings judgment on them, he will not give up his people. He will not give up his promise. He will not forsake his purposes for redemption. And so in one of the most stunning passages, uh, which I read at the beginning of the service from Hosea 11, God speaks to Israel in these words. And Again, he is not saying this when like Israel's tidied up their act and got everything together and then God's like, okay, here's, now I'm, now I'm going to have compassion and mercy towards you. No, he is saying this in the midst of Israel being just all over the place. Um, so he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's the name for Israel. How can I hand you over? How, how can I? How? These are rhetorical questions, right? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. When he says that he is God and not man, the, the, our tendency perhaps is to think that he will come in, in more justice and judgment than, than we, but actually what this passage is saying is that he's going he's gonna to show mercy. God, the Holy One, comes not as a man just set on, on judgment and justice at every turn, but set on showing mercy to his people when they don't deserve it. God's compassion is growing warm and tender, not in conjunction with their love and obedience towards him, but in their sin. These are promises that, that draw us in, that connect us to God's innermost heart. And his innermost heart while his people are sinning against him. Um, Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, points out that the only time Jesus explicitly refers to his heart uh, is when he says, my heart is gentle and lowly. That's not the totality of who God is. God is other things as well. But God would have us think about the core of his being as gentle and lowly, as warm and tender with compassion. And he is this way not to those who get their act together, not to those who feel that they deserve it. None of us do. No, he is this way towards those who know they don't, those who are ashamed 
disgusted with themselves, hopeless of ever having any worth or hope. God delights in showing mercy and kindness to the wicked. To all who would come to him, however wretched, however meager. And so throughout the prophets, we have this tension. There's this continual tension between God's unconditional promise to bring blessing to all peoples and his conditional promise based on faithfulness, based on obedience to judge sin and evil. This tension between humanity's failure and inability to stay faithful to God and God's purpose and desire to show mercy to faithless people. And this tension is front and center in the prophets. Um, sometimes it's, it, it's like a ping pong ball. It just goes back and forth. Like, warning of judgment, promise of mercy. Warning of judgment, promise of mercy. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth. And all of this points, of course, points us forward from this point in Scripture to Jesus. If we are to understand how this plays out in God's design and how this plays out in history, we have to get to Jesus. And so one of the ways that the Bible describes Jesus and explains who Jesus is and what he does is as the better Israel. Uh, what that means is that Jesus comes and does what Israel, what God's people failed to do, where they failed the covenant time and time again and failed to stay faithful to God. Jesus came and succeeded and was faithful in every turn. Where we fail to stay faithful to God and where we fail to, to live rightly and to, to love God and love others, Jesus comes and does it perfectly. And yet, whereas he should get the blessings associated with obedience, the blessings of the covenant, he actually takes the curses that we deserve. Jesus receives our curses. Paul connects the work of Jesus back to these blessings and, covenant, and, and curses, back to this covenant, uh, specifically in Galatians 3. He actually quotes Genesis 12. And then in verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and this is in Scripture, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, this blessing to bless Abraham and through him all the peoples of the earth, through Christ Jesus, this blessing might come to the Gentiles. And so Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom God's promises are fulfilled, through whom God's blessing and favor is is one, and it comes to all the families of the earth. Um, in Jesus, God upholds his perfect justice, and he judges our sin. And in Jesus, God bestows his favor and, and mercy and forgiveness on his people. God's gentle and lowly, warm and compassionate heart is seen most clearly in Jesus. We hear about it, we read these verses, and then we see Jesus, and he comes, and he shows us that God is gentle and lowly, warm and compassionate, and is drawing us to himself. 
And so just as the prophets call people back to God and speak of God's mercy and grace and say, this is who God is, return and he will be favorable. So Jesus comes and not only does he speak those words and invite us and call us back to God, but he does all that is necessary to draw us to God. Now, Jesus doesn't, the gospel of Jesus doesn't negate the warnings of judgment for rejecting him, for rejecting God. Those are still intact. Go read Revelation or Second Peter or some of the parables of Jesus. The judgments we encounter in the prophets are merely a foreshadowing of the final judgment to come. Failure to heed God's invitation, God's calling, God's warning still results in judgment. But the deliverance we need is not on our shoulders. The deliverance we need was on Jesus' shoulders. The salvation we need is not something that we can acquire by being faithful in and of ourselves to the covenant, but it is Jesus' faithfulness in our place which gets imputed to us. This is, this is the greatest news. That God has done what we could not do. And he's done it to draw us into him, draw us to himself, draw us into his, his love and favor. And he's gone to great lengths to do that. This is the gospel and it's the very wisdom and power of God. And let us embrace it with joy. Let's pray.